All right. We're taking all the best old school wisdom and blending it with the top new school methods to bring you the optimal coaching strategies. This is the 8020 Baseball Podcast with Coach Bo. Welcome 8020 Baseball community. Another awesome week and another solid episode. It is great to have all of you here. You should be proud of yourself. One, for being a coach. Two, for being a coach that wants to get better. And that's what you're doing, showing up here each week, listening to each new episode. That is definitely something to hang your hat on. Speaking of getting better, we're going to dive into four specific tips that can help us be a better version of ourselves to be better youth baseball coaches or coaches of any sport for that matter. Today we have part two of our interview with coach Kevin Woodard. Kevin has been immersed and continues to be immersed in the youth baseball world. Somebody who I have been talking with for quite a while now, discussing certain topics in youth baseball. And it became apparent that Kevin was somebody who I felt could help all of us So when I asked him to come on, he said yes. And part one was last week. And this is part two of our two-part interview. I'm not going to speak much at the beginning here. We got a good chunk of interview ready for you. And here are the four things that we're going to discuss that Kevin's going to share out in this episode. Number one, he's going to share out a tip that works well for him that ensures he gets downtime each year from baseball so he can be a much better coach when it's go time, when the season kicks off. And he also discusses how setting aside some planned downtime gives him time to work on his coaching game away from the field, away from the training facility. He also shares a very interesting take on how he handles water breaks along with an SOP, a standard operating procedure that probably nets his team five to 10 minutes of extra practice time at every single practice by doing this one simple thing. He'll share that with us. We'll discuss it and variations of how this can be implemented. Kevin also shares how he has fun interactions with the other team's coaches to set an example for his players, showing that the game environment can and should be fun. And to start off, we are going to dive right into the benefits of having older players, older teams mix and practice with younger teams and younger players and the benefits there. With that said, let's dive in with Coach Kevin Woodard. So let's say you have older kids go down and work with the younger teams. You might have three or four kids come down or two kids come down. And like you said, they come down to give their time back to the lower levels. It allows you now, we're talking about freeing up time. So let's say you got like a a 10-year-old team or let's say a nine-year-old team and then like a 12-year-old team. If you have some of those 12-year-olds come down to the lower levels, now for that younger team practice, you have more freedom. You have more freedom, which is awesome. Also, when do we become become the most knowledgeable about our topic or subject. It's when we teach it, right? That teaching it really solidifies it. So now the 12-year-olds are having to teach it. So they're really having to think it through. And there's a third benefit of this. I think kids that go into the role of, hey, you think coaching's easy? You try it. You think parenting's easy? You try it. It's hard to put those kids in those roles, but this is a good opportunity. Like the 12-year-olds will have, I think, on average, will have a better appreciation for coaches if they got to go down and coach an eight-year-old team. Because you know what? When those kids aren't listening to them, they're going to feel your your frustration when they're not listening to you, right? There's a fourth benefit. As tough as middle school and high school are, if I can have a group of older kids go hang out with some younger kids and having fun playing baseball when they get to high school all that bullying and stuff 
goes away between the upperclassmen and the lowerclassmen. Hey, you're a baseball player. Yeah, oh, you came to my practice. Then there's some knowledge there. It moves out into the community too, because now you're mingling the kids. You're mingling these parents that wouldn't normally be hanging out. At that point, it goes out into the community. And that's probably one of the biggest benefits of it. Absolutely. That's a great point you make right there. And that goes back to the kids feeling comfortable and in a safe and a comfortable spot and less stress, more relaxed. And if they're familiar with those older kids, they're going to be more relaxed around them. Well, let's look at Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes grew up going to the, the Major League Baseball games. His dad wasn't a football player. He was a, a Major League Baseball player. So he spent time as a little kid in Major League stadiums around those people. So just that familiarity with older people. You could go down the list. Guerrero, Fielder. All these guys were playing up. Tatis. We saw these kids hanging out with their dads when they were seven years old at the stadium. So there's that being not just being comfortable and, and the respect between the older kids so there's no bullying, but also just more comfortable with older kids. So when you do come in as like for high school, if you come in as a freshman, that's a very tough time navigating a lot of things. But if you feel more comfortable because you've been there, you've hung out with those older kids. And not only that, like you said, they're more accepting of you and you break down that barrier. I coach with a guy who would always bring up the grade level of kids. All right, he's a senior. He's a junior. He's playing great for a freshman. And I used to think, man, we don't want division. We don't want a message of division. We want a message of unity and, and coming together. I think you say the same thing about the country. We need to talk more about how we're all on the same team together. So I think that's a great point that you make there. Did you want to add on to that or do you want to well, move on to the well, team? You brought up my majors team going down to coach a t-ball team. The situation was, is somebody convinced a mom to take on a t-ball team? Never coached before, nothing. First practice, she didn't know what to do for drills or anything, brand new to everything. And I said, hey, just don't worry about it. I'll come take care of it. And our t-ball field is right next to our majors field. So I see the kids coming in. And I said, practice is going to be different today, boys. Let's go. So we go down there and we set up just a tee hitting into a bonnet, little cones for grounders and different things. And I said, all right, you two are going to be here. And I set up the stations with the kids. I spun the top and I just stood back. And I, for the 45 minutes of practice, I didn't need to get involved in anything. They self-regulated because for that 45 minutes, they all had a baseball glove. They all had a ball. They had a bat. There was no difference between any of the kids. They're all playing baseball. And it was just a really cool experience. All the parents were smiling because they're taking pictures of the older kids playing with the little kids. The little kids' parents are taking pictures of these little kids playing with these great big kids. It was just sort of an organic thing that the kids ended up talking about the entire season. And when the little kids later on would show up and they'd see one of my kids, oh, you were at my practice. And it was like the kids getting recognized like a superstar. You could see their heads swell up. Oh, I'm cool. So yeah, it was a great experience. And I recommend all leagues do that. Have the uppers good out of practice with the lowers. I think majors sort of that 10, 12 and up should be helping with challenger practices and games. It just should be a requirement. There is no downside to doing that. It gives you a total appreciation for everything in life that's good. No matter what happens, you're celebrating it. And it's something that gets lost in youth baseball a lot. And it's sort of that dark side of youth baseball that there's all this negativity. Oh, he struck out. Oh man, that's terrible. That's a bad thing. So what? Major leaguers strike out, right? So you go to these challenger games and everything's exciting. Everything is awesome. You're bonding. The kids are on the field as coaches. So they're helping out. 
They, heck, they sing the national anthem with everybody. They're out there cooking hot dogs and doing lunch. It should be a mandatory thing for all leagues. Absolutely. The amount of smiles at a, a challenger event or like Special Olympics events, the smile per minute per capita is just through the roof so much higher and it's contagious. I remember in college, a requirement for one of my courses was to go and work uh, Special Olympics at Cal State Fullerton. And I got there, I go, this is going to be fun. My cheeks were hurting when I left because of the smiles and it really grounded me back into this is just fun. This is a game. And they're also just giving back is always rewarding. I also thought about your big buddy system. My kid has a big buddy, an eighth grader. And I remember when I was in the first grade, I had a big buddy who was in the fifth grade. And that was the only year my school did it. They didn't do it any other year. And I thought, why not? In fact, I remember that fifth grader went on to be the starting high school quarterback. So when I was like in seventh grade, I would go to the high school game and, and he would say hi to me. Then when I got to high school and played on that team, I felt more included, inclusive. And I just wonder why they didn't do it every year all the way through. Just that big buddy program, or, or like you said, the olders with the youngers. I think you're onto something there. And so listeners, you're listening to this. Think about ways you can get more of the older group of kids working with the younger group, because as parents and stuff, there's only so much they want to hear from us. And they want to also see other kids do it. And if you can get those kids that are a lot older to come down, so many pluses that we've talked about. Now, I'll tell you what, we could definitely go into that more, but you've been coaching a while now. What as a coach to stay fresh, to keep it fresh, avoid burning out. What are some things that helps you keep coaching youth baseball and keep it fresh and rewarding for yourself? each season and to avoid burnout. How do you as a coach avoid burnout so you can be a great coach season in and season out? I would say I don't. Anyone that is in coaching for any amount of time knows that most of the things have to go to the family. If it weren't for my wife and the support I get at home, none of my coaching would be possible. So to that point, we schedule a monthly family thing, but it's basically mandatory. We, all right, we're making reservations to go to dinner. You can't schedule a clinic on top of our dinner. You got to go. It's mandatory family time. It just gets scheduled in like anything else. It's so needed, especially during the opening to Little League season, like January, February, between our board meetings and setting up Little League and all that stuff. It's all consuming if we let it. And it's so much fun, but we also have a family. And for the daddy ball side of me, yeah, I, I want to spend time with my son as, as much as I do my son, the baseball player. So going out to dinner or going to the movies or something like that, you've got to do that. And then I would say two or three years ago, I decided December was a shutdown month that like it stuff starts to tail off. We're still having board meetings and stuff to get ready for spring, but there's got to be downtime and it became a time of reflection for a lot of years that it's like, all right, this is what we did this year. This is probably what I need to do next year to be a little bit better. What trainings and stuff are available that I need to do? Talk to people, reach out to people like Driveline. Hey, what's coming up for this year that I need to learn about? What's the new cool thing that I need to incorporate? And getting involved in that stuff helps keep it fresh because I'm learning something new. If I wasn't learning or doing the continuing education stuff, I could definitely see it going stale. You can only teach a rolling grounder so many times before even you as a coach get bored with it. There's got to be some other thing to apply to it or use it for something else that you just, you, you can't have it be stale. And then I would say just coach something you haven't coached before. When you're doing daddy ball, you're moving up with this group of kids say, hey, you know what, for fall ball, I'm not going to coach my kid. I'm going to coach two levels down. 
And yeah, that'll open your eyes because you're used to kids 10 to 12 being able to do some certain things. You drop down to seven, eight and they're not doing it. And that first moment of frustration that comes in and you're like, well, wait a minute, these are seven and eight. I got to remember and start coaching back to the age. And then you just get knee deep in, in that age group. And man, it's so much fun. And then when you come back to the older kids, you're like, oh, I just had the best time. I'd rather hang out with them than you guys. So my biggest tip would be, if you can, thank your family for allowing you to do it and to figure out how to coach something you haven't coached before. And I think three would be just try to learn something, do something hard, try to learn it. How to shape a curveball is probably not the thing to learn, but just take a course on leadership or something like that. Do something harder. Scheduling the downtime, that's a fantastic tip right there. And you could schedule whether it's a weekly downtime, like this day, we're not doing anything or nothing related to baseball or like December, I'm off. December is just off for the family, no sports, no nothing, or going and doing something else. In fact, you mentioned coaching something else, maybe another level or another sport, but it could be something completely different. It could be like going and coaching something completely different or being a scout leader, really trying to keep it fresh and then looking to improve. I love how you mentioned that. Something that just kept me coming back when I see a lot of burnout, a lot of fatigue, and even coaches that didn't burn out technically didn't just quit you could tell like but they're burned out on the job I, I felt like they were just going through the motions but if every day i was showing up looking for some little component of being a better coach connecting with players better running a more efficient drill a safer drill if you just take those two components of trying to connect better and motivate and move players in a better direction more efficiently in a better way and more authentic that alone is so hard to do and takes so much time but it's also unique each kid is different so it's hard to get burned out because the next set of kids the next year those kids may be way different so that keeps it fresh the other thing is like think about like henry ford was sitting there and probably just like studying the, the factory line, but there's dozens of parts to a drill that you could tinker with. Now, be careful how much you're trying to change. I don't recommend making wholesale changes mid-season, but I found going out there and just really trying to maximize quality reps and maximize the connection with players and relate to them, that right there keeps it so fresh and entertaining and everybody wins, not just you as a coach. Of course, the team is going to win and all the players. Yeah, I see some coaches like every minute of the practice is scheduled with some drill, with some high-functioning thing and that's cool once in a while but you know what for the end of practice we're going to do base running and we're going to do a home run trot i want to see everybody's best home run trot let them have fun if you don't include those things it's got to be fresh for the kids too it's not just me as a coach to keep it fresh you got to keep it fresh for the kids so every once in a while and the kids do a home run trot for base running why not they end the practice happy especially if it's a hard one when they're doing something cool and they're talking about it. There's got to be freshness all the way around. All the way around, for sure. And how about coaches having this list of 10 things that are out of the ordinary? They're not your foundational drills. They're not your throwing routine. They're not your warm up, and they're not your batting practice. But you have a list of 10 things that you create before the season as a coach. For example, one of them up the list could be home run trot. How about dodgeball? How about a water balloon battle or a slip and slide? How about just, hey, you know what? We're going to go call practice a little early and go get ice cream. Not every practice, but maybe one practice. You just say, you know what? Surprise the kids. Let the parents know. Email them or text message them. Say, hey, we're going to end at instead of 7 o'clock, we're going to end at 630 and we're going to go head over to the ice cream shop here and we're going to get ice cream or something like that. But you have a list of 10 things that one are a little surprise. But like you said, Kevin, they keep it 
fresh, it's different. And then within the drills, are you improving those drills? Are you keeping them fast paced? Are you making the drills better so that they're more fun for the kid? And then are you getting efficient and effective with how much you can connect, how you can spread your connection and rapport with so many kids and make them all feel recognized? If you do those three things right there, you're really going to keep everything so fresh. So now we've talked a lot about the ownership, players taking ownership, and agency. We've talked about giving them a little more agency. Are there any things that you would recommend to the listeners, young coaches, to gradually give more agency to players? Are there things you've done that help players take more ownership in their development and actions on the field? Or anything that's worked well for you over the years? Yeah. One of the things that, that I do that takes coaches in our league back is I don't set up or take down the field. When I show up, I'm standing there with my fungo in the middle of the field waiting to go. I'll unlock our container box that has all the gear and I'll unlock the fences. And after that, the kids put the bases in, the kids set up the bonnets, the kids put the hang the uh, bands on the fence and one or two of them will say, hey, what are the first drills, coach? What do we need? And I said, well, we need a couple of bonnets here, one over here. All right. And then I stand back. I just get out of the way and they set up the field. Bases are in, bonnets are made, bands are being done. All that stuff's happening and I don't have to say a word. One of the other things I do, and it got me a funny reputation for being the mean coach, is I don't have water breaks. Starting at the age of 10, we don't stop for water because what happens is, hey, let's go get a drink of water and then come back out. Well, the dugout is like a black hole. Once you get those 10-year-olds into the dugout, it's mayhem. They don't come out and you it's almost like having to start practice over. So one of the things that we talk about is that when they come in to get started for practice is they line their gloves up on the edge of the outfield grass, all stacked nice with each other and their water bottles go right behind it. So they're responsible for their own water through practice. If they want to get a drink, get a drink, man. We're not shutting practice down for you to go get a drink. And the first time parents hear that, it's funny that the kids grumble a little bit, but the parents grumble a lot. But after a couple of practices, they see the benefit because the kids during a practice, they don't go in the dugout for anything. And if they're not in the dugout, then they're not horsing around and I'm keeping them on the field engaged in drills. And it's just a better practice. And then at the same time, hey, guys, practice is done. Let's go. And that's all I got to say. Bases come up, bone nets get put away. When I first started, I would say, OK, practice is over. And there'd be four, five, six kids grab their bag and walk. I'm looking around, there's bonnets, it's chaos on the field, and they just walk out with their parents. And so it was like at that first parent meeting, hey, we come in as a group, we leave as a team, right? Nobody goes until everything's picked up, you're ready to go, we get a break. And that's just the way it is. And I had some grumbling in the beginning, but then it, as the parents got used to it and the kids got used to it, they knew if they wanted to go, they had to get the field picked up. And it's amazing how motivating that is for kids and parents, because then the parents would be on the kids. Hey, you're standing there. Go put that away. And I could hear them whispering to their kids to go pick up. It translates to home life as well. Like you want to do something, you got to do this thing first. It becomes part of a life lesson as well. And the responsible, like for the water, like I said, if they drink all their water, hey, or don't drink the water, they don't take the water out of their backpack. Hey, coach, can I go get my water bottle? And I said, hey, so for you to go get your water bottle, we have to stop this to for you to go do that. And the first couple of practices, it's like, all right, everybody stop. Johnny's got to get his water bottle. And then you see four kids go into the dugout to get their water bottles too, because they were afraid to ask. And it's sort of a tough lesson at first, because it's like you're calling out these kids and it's 
oh, that's so mean. But you know what? They don't forget their water bottle the next time. And then they're reminding each other the accountability amongst the team. Hey, don't forget your water bottle today. You're not going to be able to go get it later. And so that's the accountability that's more important to me, no matter what age group it is. It's high school, if it's 10-year-olds, seven-year-olds, if one kid can remind another kid to get his water out, like I've won. Yeah. As we're listening to Kevin here, the question talking about accountability or I should say ownership and agency and giving the players more of that. Kevin said, hey, let's start. And I think this is fantastic and should be the starting point of agency or giving the accountability and responsibilities over to the kids is set up the field and break down the field because they're not running the drills. There's really no safety issue, but they all should be able to set and put those things together. I love that as a first step, kids set up the practice and they break down the practice as much as they can. And again, that gives you more freedom to maybe talk with the assistant coaches about the practice plan because a lot of coaches are coming from their day job and they're getting to the field. If they didn't have time to maybe read the email about what, what's going on in practice. I love that. I will say this though. I will say this. If you don't get a little grumble as a coach, when you introduce a new thing or a new process, if you don't get a little grumble, be worried. If you don't get a little grumble from your players, at least a few of them, be concerned. That's a red flag that what you're doing is not in their best interest. You want some grumble. If they're all smiles and cheering, when you tell them about a new thing you're going to do, if you don't get a little grumble, that's a big red flag. And I know that sounds counterintuitive and that's why I'm bringing it up. I would say this about, and like Kevin mentioned, I want to reiterate what he said, communicate like Kevin does with the families and the kids before the season or as early as you can. Hey, the expectation is kids are going to set up the bow nets. They're going to set up the tee. They're going to set up this. They're going to put the balls here. The expectation is that the coaches are not doing that. The players are going to do that. Set that expectation. Just communicate. Like Kevin said, let's communicate that early so it's not a surprise because they'll likely be coming from other teams that most of the time the kids aren't doing that. Or high school too. They're going to have to set up the field in high school. So get them used to it now. If they go to a high school practice, there's no coaches out there telling anybody what to do. The kids are self-regulated. They're doing it. So the sooner you can start that, the easier high school life. And if they go to college, the same thing, that life is going to be so much easier because they're ready for it. They're ready for it. We're prepping them for life. There's a couple things, a question might come up, was like, hey, Kevin, hey, Coach Bo, well, th this punishes the kids that show up to practice on time or earlier. Why wouldn't the kids just show up like right before practice so they don't have to do this work? There's a couple ways around this. One, you don't start the setup until, say, practice is from five to seven. You could, if that's an issue, you could do two things. You could reward the players that get there early and do set up the field, although you got to be careful because some of these kids are coming from places or schools, their school gets out later. It's not their fault that they're getting there late. Their mom or dad may not get off work. So you don't want to punish the kid for something out of their control. So be very careful with that. I like the idea of starting it off and say, you have all the, the bow nets right there and you have the buckets and, and you have everything kind of the basis, or, or at least like you said, you have the lock off the, the container, the storage container that might be by the field. Then at five o'clock when they should be there, for example, if it's a five o'clock practice, you set a timer and you time them so you don't take up too much practice time. And you'd be surprised how fast 12 kids, 13 kids, 11 kids can do work. They can do it really fast. I've seen 12 kids pick up 150 baseballs in less than 90 seconds. It's amazing. I mean, from all over the field in all directions. Also moving on. I love the no water breaks. I more specifically actually like your no dugout coaches. Kevin just gave you two things right there that if you don't get anything else out of this, which I know you're going to get a lot out of this, those two things right there alone, do not 
let your kids put, and almost all coaches do this because they just, they don't know. But now you know, we're telling you, don't let your players put the gear in the dugout. I've coached a lot of youth teams and I learned this one. Do not because Kevin is so right. And a lot of you that have been coaching, you know what we're talking about. They get in that dugout and it's, oh, it's a wrap. It's not productive. It's not a good spot. Keep them out of the dugout during practice. Their bag, their glove, everything should be outside, not on the field, of course, and not somewhere where they might trip over and get hurt. I always like to put it right along the front of the fence if it's their bag. And you like Kevin said, you could put their glove in a designated area or their bat in a designated area. I think everything should be out of the bag at the beginning of practice. That's the expectation is that say it's a five o'clock practice. Everything they're going to use is out of the bag, including that water bottle. Everything needs to be out. Now, it could just all be on top so they can easily grab it. But they shouldn't have to be digging through their bag during practice. And do not let them go into the dugout. Keep their stuff outside. Another thing, too, kids are not all dehydrated at the same time. And and hydration levels are all different. So you have 12 kids on your team. There's no way all 12 need need water at the same time. Some kids may not need any, and some kids really may need it after 20 minutes. So I love how you're giving some agency and letting them pick. And it also doesn't take away from your practice time. And if you're not going to do it that way, a second option would simply water bottles are outside just with the rest of the gear ready to go, and you time them. And I've never given a water break more than two minutes, and that's more than enough. I've done two-hour practice. I'll do two water breaks, usually 90 seconds. They don't need more than that because if they need more than that, there's some other health issues going on or... They're not coming prepared to practice drinking water on the way. So that's something I communicate. Make sure they're drinking a bottle of water on the way to practice. So there's always different ways to handle. So I wanted to reiterate, Kevin, do you want to add to that? Yeah. On the equipment thing, like we always, for every game that you have, you've got to lay your bats and helmets out for the umpire inspection. Keep it all the same. If your practice is the same as the game, you don't have to yell at them as they come in for the game. Hey, don't forget to put your bat and helmet out. No, you do that for practice too. When you come in for practice, if you want to let them put their bag inside the dugout, that's cool. But lay your helmets and bats and your gloves out, everything you're going to need for practice out like you would for a game. And then it's the same. They know it doesn't matter. As soon as they enter the field, it's just repetition. They do that same thing over and over again. They're not at oh, game. Okay, I got to take this stuff out. For practice, I do this. If you keep it all the same, it makes it easy on them. It makes it easy. It's a, the routine stays consistent, less to think about, and then they can focus more on the game. And some of you might be going, well, coach, the kids can't sit down for a few minutes. No, they're 11 years old. They're nine years old. They're 12. They don't need to sit down for two hours. They're fine. They're fine. They can handle it. And if they can't, they they probably should build up to being able to stand up and not sit down for two hours. They're already sitting in school all day. And if anything, it should be motivation to not let them sit down during practice. I I never let my team sit down during practice outside of maybe somebody's having a low blood sugar that's diabetic or something like that or an asthma attack. But other than that, there's no sitting down. It's funny that if you hear the parents grumble about the no sitting down, no water breaks, but if you wait after practice and you're talking to some parents, I guarantee you there's six or seven kids on the field doing WWE wrestling moves on each other and they're running around crazy. The energy's still there. Don't tell me that they need a 30 second water break. I mean, they're roughhousing and running around in circles, playing tag, whatever it is after practice has ended. They've got the energy for days. Let them expend it. Let me take advantage of it on the practice field. Yeah, the parents should be thanking you and uh, maybe giving you an extra gift card to Sizzler. All right, moving forward here, I want to dive into this next question of punishment, punishing a player. Kid messes up. What's your take on punishment? I know you said you like burpees. I'm a big bear crawl fan. I'm a huge fan of bear crawls, which has a similar idea to burpees. But what's your take on punishment and consequences and having some kind of law and order out there? 
the word punishment is hard for me. One of the things I always tell them is I'm never mad at you or anybody. I might be disappointed in an action, but I'm never mad. And I think punishment sometimes comes from a place of anger and, and being mad. And it's never that. I'm just, there's accountability. I've, I've got to hold you accountable for your actions. Your teammates should have the freedom to hold you accountable for things as well, especially when you get up into the high school and, and the 13, 14, that high school prep I talk about, just a sense of accountability to yourself and each other. If you're not representing yourself in a way that's not where it should be, then yeah, we need to have a discussion. And that's why I keep myself free sometimes to do things. So I have the ability to go take little Tommy off to the side. Hey, I don't know what's going on today, but we got to figure this out. And as it becomes a discussion, the older the kid, the more in-depth the discussion. It could be at high school. Hey, my girlfriend broke up with me or whatever. Hey, let's go talk about it. Let's take five minutes. I'll tell the other coaches, hey, I'll be right back. We're going to go sit down and he might be done for the day. Hey, just take the rest of practice off. Go figure it out. When you come back tomorrow, be ready to play. If they're a little younger, there could be a hundred things that could be off. And a lot of times it's not stuff that's even in their control, but it's still a relatable point to the kids. Yeah, I do a lot of burpees, but it's fun. So a ball goes five hole on a kid through the legs. It's a burpee. Every kid on the field knows it and you see it happen. All the kids are like burpee. Like I say, it's not punishment. It's, hey, you let one through. Bummer, you gotta do a burpee. If you don't wanna do burpees, don't let the ball through. If a kid pushes that hard and raises a coach's anger level that high, there's something huge going on and it's something that needs to have a bigger discussion. And that then becomes accountability between the coaches. So if you see a coach getting wound up that tight that he's ready to punish as an assistant coach, hey coach, let me see what's going on with the kid and pull them out of the situation. Is it just a, there was a misunderstanding between the expectations and what happened? Or do you got to talk to the coach? Like maybe the coach is getting wound up too easy. I rarely see a time when we need to punish a kid. I just don't like the place that it comes from. I'm the same, saying the same thing over and over again. I feel super strong about negative emotions on a baseball field. There's not really a place for it. This is supposed to be a fun game. The, the more we can keep it that way, the better. And, and granted, some kids will wind you up. It could be that day and they just know every button on coach to push. And you just got to keep it in check and you got to find a way to work through it. Change the drills so that it makes it in such a way that it's more successful for all the kids or whatever the case is. I, I will ask a kid to go take a break, go, go get your water and go walk to wherever it depends on for a third base, go walk to the left field, pull them back. Just take a minute, take a walk, come back and let's sort it out and get moving again. Rarely does it get any more harsh for me than that. I agree a hundred percent that we don't want to punish kids. We do have to have order and we do have to have expectations. The expectation is this, or the, the standard is going to be this. If you have eight teams and you have four coaches that really care about the kids that are out there for the right reasons, that aren't yelling, that are not coming from a bad place, they don't have other issues in their life that are making them not fun to be around and not really a person that should coach. I feel like kids would be better off just doing the sandlot than having a bad coach. I think kids would be much better off in the long run, just running it with Benny the Jet and Squints and all them just running it. I think they'd be better off than having a bad coach, not a bad coach who doesn't know the game. What I'm talking about is like that really makes it miserable and not fun. I believe that the answer should never be, but we don't have enough coaches. No, you don't need that many. In fact, you got four teams and three of those coaches are making it miserable. They're not, they're yelling. They're not fit to coach youth sports. 
fine. Take those other three teams and give them to Coach Kevin. Give them to me. I'll take them. And we know what? We'll run a practice with two fields and we'll run it together. I'll get some assistant coaches that at least I can guide. You know what I mean? I feel like we should have fewer coaches and better coaches. What you mentioned about punishment, this is something I think we always have to ask ourselves. Are we addressing the action or the athlete or the person? Are we addressing the behavior? Are we addressing the behavior? Like Kevin said, you'll tell a kid you're you're disappointed in their behavior, their action. And I think that's so important that they know that you're addressing the action and not them as a person. And I think we always have to ask ourselves, is their perception is that I'm coming at them or I'm coming at that action or behavior? And I think that's a big difference. Now, the burpee and the bear crawls, I'm a big bear crawl fan only because I found that it's a little gentler on the elbows and and shoulders in that you're not the impact coming down. But at the end of the day, they're both really great to increase focus. Kids need a little extrinsic motivator sometimes to stay focused, right? If you tell them, hey, you get a burpee or five burpees, that's going to increase the focus. And also it gets them prepared for the game. A game can be a stressful situation, but if you make practice challenging and add some of these things in there, that can really reduce the stress of the game because they're like, hey, we already worked through it with some of these extrinsic stressors that were artificially added. So I definitely like where you're coming from on all that. That's just a great message that you're sharing with these coaches. So we talked about working away from the punishment and not really thinking of it as punishment, but just changing behavior, right? We're trying to change behavior and get our kids better. So we've talked a lot about coaching practice, coaching the players and the culture and all that. When you go to coach games and you're coaching a game, of course, we want to make it a fun environment. What are some things that you you do at a game that you feel more coaches could probably be doing? You can't go into it with expectations. If there's one thing I've learned about kids, it, it they're never going to do what you expect. So you go to a game and you're like, hey, on paper, this should be a really good day. I've set this up. This should be great. And never fails. It just all goes sideways. You just, you can't have expectations. If you're going to preach to the kids that we're going to play a game, then it should be a game for the coaches too. I have no problem giving the other coaches a hard time because we have to cross into each other's dugouts to be first base or third base coaches. As coaches, we're chopping it up, having fun, and we're laughing. And if the kids can see us having a good time with it, they're going to have a good time on the field because chances are they're out there with their friends. The other team is their friends. It's just a glorified sandlot that we actually keep scoring on scoreboards. You got to keep it light. And I am going to talk out of both sides of my mouth because when you get to the playoffs, yeah, it gets competitive. You want to win because winning is fun and the kids want to win and all that stuff. And I get all that. You've got to have a base of fun and enjoyment no matter what. And especially if you got a kid on the team and your kid goes up and strikes out three times, you've got to have the same reaction to your kid that you would have to any other kid that strikes out three times. Because if you don't, everyone's going to know who your kid is, one. And two, that's not what your kid wants to see. They want to see support, right? We All the kids do. So you, you got to have fun with it. It's a game. I take a lot from coach ball game. <laughs> And that everything's fun. It's, it's got to be enjoyable or else why are we doing this? I have a job that I do for eight hours a day. I don't want to go to a baseball thing with little kids for another job for two and a half hours that I don't get paid for where everybody's grumpy and mad all the time. That can't be why we're here. You don't get mad. Sometimes there's disappointment. That's fine. Let's move on from it. But it's got to be fun. I played with many players from the Dominican and Venezuela from Panama, Puerto Rico, when I was in the minor leagues. And it seemed like they were having so much more fun because like their alternative was, this was a game. Their outlook was like, this is our escape. 
this is our escape from, especially from the Dominican Republic. It's like, we're in America. We're playing a game. This is the best thing ever. We're like in heaven. In fact, I went to a Angels-Yankees game in Anaheim years ago with a husband of one of the family friends. And so we sit down. He was born in the Dominican Republic, played with the Tigers in their minor league organization. And I just remember him sitting down. He sits down and everybody else is sitting down. All the fans are like, they're not even enjoying these great seats and Mike Trout right in front of them. And Tanaka at the time was pitching, but he sits down and goes, this is heaven. Now he actually said, this is haven, but you know, second language English, this is haven. He was just like, this is heaven. And I love the attitude. Like, and what I'm saying is, what you're saying, you got to go out there and keep it in perspective. I did have conversations with coaches that would start arguing and yelling at the umpires. I'd go over them. I didn't know them. I'd just walk over and say to the opposing coach, go, hey, this is nine-year-old baseball. This is nine-year-old baseball on a Tuesday night at 4.30 on some backfield in Irvine, California, right? Nobody cares about this but us here. Nobody's going to read about this. So let's just have fun. This isn't life and death. This, And I would say that this isn't life and death. You said have a base of fun, a base level of fun and enjoyment, a base level of fun and enjoyment. I love how you put that, Kevin. Coaches, we should always go out there, win or lose. There should be a base level fun. You should always have X amount of fun no matter what. And then, yeah, the winning and losing can factor into some of that fun, of course. But that base level, I love how you worded that. And it really gave me a good visual of what our goal is. Is there anything you'd like to add to that or anything as we wrap up? Any final thoughts? Yeah, I would say reach out to people. The one thing I've found is everyone's accessible. If you were to send an Instagram message to Devin Morgan, he'll answer. Hey, what do, what's a good thing for this? I reached out to a couple of the guys at Arm Care talking about their sensors. I sent him a message. I had a response in two hours. And then two days later, I had a two hour long phone call with them about weights and pitching philosophy. These guys are all thinking the same way that we are and that we need to help the youth, one, not get hurt, and then two, have more fun doing something they really enjoy. And I would say any of those programs, drive like you, you don't have to 100% buy into anything, but at least hear what they have to say because you're going to take a nugget from all these different places and you add all that stuff up because what you'll find is at the lower levels, you can apply one thing to all the kids at the low levels. As the kids' bodies start to change, puberty's undefeated, right? As the kids change, arms get long, some kids get tall, some kids don't. You've got to dive into specific things for every kid. You can't just paint a broad brush. So you might get a thing from driveline. Hey, that's going to work for this kid or something from Arv Care that's going to work on this kid or Tom House. When there's so many of them, reach out. They will respond. I would say the last thing is, and this is not necessarily with learning and certifications, but to wrap things up, embrace your failures as a coach you're going to fail a lot. And the more you can embrace the failures that you have as a coach and understand it, the better you're going to be. Like if you don't fail every day, you're not trying. There's every practice, I screw something up. I'll mess up a kid's name. I'll start to set up a drill and put the cones in the wrong spot or whatever. And the kids are like, coach, you got to fail, embrace it. The way you handle a kid's going to be wrong one time. And then you're like, okay, I did it wrong that time. Embrace it, figure out why and apply it to the next interaction you have because we'll make you so much better. And that's a message for the kids too. Don't try not to fail. Just go ahead and fail and learn from it. It's not a big deal. I think it wouldn't be too far of a stretch to say coaches that become good to great 
and coaches that don't ever get better probably fail about the same amount or on average probably fail a similar amount to start or at least in those first initial few years. But it's the coaches that, like you said, embrace the failure, check the ego and grow from that failure. They embrace failure. They're welcoming of failure and they don't run from it and hide from it. And they're not letting their ego take over. Like you're talking about, keep it fun for kids. Make sure they're focusing on the right things when they're younger. I should say, focus on the key big needle movers, the 80-20, until they get maybe to a certain level where you're trying to maybe prep them for a specific positions or maybe more advanced baseball to get closer to high school or in, definitely in high school. That's when you should be studying as a parent or as a coach on some of those skill development mechanics, hitting swing, pitching delivery a little bit more so you can stay up to date with that sort of thing. I'll tell you what, this has been a lot of fun, Kevin. I'd love to have you come back on and hit those other two topics that I think are, are super important. Would you be up for that down the road? Of course. This has been really cool. Awesome. Kevin, you take care. You too. Thanks. All right, that wraps up our interview with Coach Kevin Woodard. When I look back over the two-part interview, there were definitely a half a dozen things we talked about that would benefit almost every coach. And of course, that's always the goal to bring interviews like Kevin's that give us multiple things that we can go and improve, tips, strategies that we can go use right away, things that can get us much better each time we walk out on the baseball field, more confident. And I'll tell you what, Going out there with the knowledge that we discuss here on the 8020 Baseball Podcast, the best thing out of everything is going out there more confident because a confident coach not only can stay humble, but we're going out there prepared. We're more excited because we're not scared of what the heck we're going to do, trying to figure out what we're going to do. We're worried about how things might go or how things are going to play out. And we're not concerned or worried about embarrassing ourselves because we're going out there with a plan that has been proven to work. One thing I really try hard on this podcast to do is not just say, oh, this coach did this, so you should do it. Or this coach over here did this, or Augie Garrido did that, or Bobby Cox did this, or they do this at LSU, or this high school coach did this. It's the reasoning behind it that we discuss here that makes a big difference in one, being able to understand the reasons of why it works for that coach and also to connect it to those first principles so we know it's not just a one-off thing that works for that coach and not knowing if there are other variables that are really moving the needle outside of that tip or suggestion or that strategy. So with that said, thank you all for being here this week. If you wouldn't mind leaving a review or rating, it really helps the podcast. And the best thing you can do to support this podcast is to share it with a friend. Just text message it out. When you're done with this episode in just a second, just shoot it off to a couple coaches that you know, friends, family, and all you have to say is, hey, I'm getting something out of this. You may find it useful. And then copy and paste the link in there. And that would be greatly appreciated, that support, spreading the message, because the baseball community is not in a great place overall. The youth sports has a long way to go to being the place that it can be and should be as a fun, enjoyable, game-like, competitive environment. That gets our players and kids prepared for life. Speaking of that, next week, I will share a great strategy for helping players set goals for the upcoming season. And I'll share with you the common flaw with this process so we don't make that same mistake that very often happens when setting goals for an upcoming season or when setting goals in general. 
So that'll be next Tuesday at our next get together here on the 8020 Baseball Podcast, the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. We're trying to master the key big needle movers first and foremost that will net us youth baseball coaches the greatest return on our time and a huge level of success with our players and team. Until next week, take care of yourselves, your health, your families, your close friends, and take this information out there and put it into play. All right, everyone. Until next week, adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.